Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Eric Larson, whose latest book is The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill family and defiance during the Blitz. Eric Larson is the author of Dead Wake, In the Garden of Beasts, Thunderstruck, The Devil in the White City, and Isaac's Storm. I spoke to you about Dead Wake a few years back, and uh, at that point, of course, you had no idea what you were going to do next. In the epilogue to this book, you talk about 9-11 and how that put you onto something. And then in a Rolling Stone interview, you mentioned the idea of dealing with a specific family during the Blitz. So, Take me from 9-11 to the idea of the Blitz to the Churchill family, which is where the book takes us. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, to, to explain the 9-11 part was because uh, about five years ago, my family, my wife and I moved from Seattle to Manhattan after our kids had flown the coop, as kids do. And on arriving in, in Manhattan, I had kind of a, an epiphany, really. I mean, this may sound like a, you know, a duh moment, but I had this epiphany about the meaning of, of 9-11 for New Yorkers versus the rest of us. I mean, we watched the whole thing unfold in, in, in real time on CNN. I mean, as horrifying as it was. But when I got to New York, I realized that, that as horrifying as it was for us, it was nothing as, as compared to what had been experienced by New Yorkers, um, especially this sort of sense of violation of one's home. And I started thinking about the, about the Blitz. I'd always been somewhat interested in that. And, and, and I like to refer to it, frankly, as the German air campaign, because it's much more than what people refer to as the Blitz. I started thinking about that and started thinking, well, how, how on earth did anybody survive that air campaign, the, the Blitz portion of which consisted of 57 consecutive nights of bombing by the Luftwaffe? How do you survive something? And so I started thinking about, well, maybe trying to find a family in the records at maybe the Imperial War Museum, finding one family to portray how they actually managed to get through this whole thing. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, why, why do a family when I could do the quintessential family, Churchill and his family and his advisors? So that's how I, I actually came to, to this story. How did you get to the two most important diaries, which are John Colville and Mary Churchill. Getting to them was is, is a very different process. Uh, the Colville diary, there is a published version. And then, of course, there is the original version in the Churchill archives in Cambridge, which actually turned out to be invaluable to me for a reason we can get into if you, if you like. But the Colville diary has been published. It's a book called The Fringes of Power. There's volume one and volume two. And it's a wonderful, wonderful diary. And it's very, very accurate in terms of how how loyal it is to the original manuscript. I know this because I checked them both. My favorite diary in the book was that of, uh, of Mary Churchill, who at the start of the action is 17 years old, turns 18 uh, you know, in the second half of the, the book. 
Mary Churchill was the Churchill's um, youngest surviving daughter. She left this terrific diary. It was just wonderful. She was a very articulate, really smart young woman who had all these interesting observations about the war, about Churchill, you know, her father, about all that was going around her, but, but also provided a really rich, charming portrait of what life was like in this period for a 17-year-old girl. She wanted to have fun, and, uh, and she did. So that diary proved invaluable. How did you find that the diary existed or that there was so much more to Colville than what was published? The Mary Churchill diary, I had somewhere learned that it was among the holdings of the Churchill Archive Center at Cambridge University in, in Cambridge. I knew, of course, that the, the Churchill archives were there, but I didn't know anything about this diary. And once I heard about this, here's the sequence. Mary Churchill, much later in life, did a memoir. She quotes glancingly her own diary, which made me think there must be a more complete document. And that's when I actually went looking for that. So that's how I came across that. I was very lucky, by the way, to get permission to use it, because at the time when I requested that permission, I was one of only two scholars who had had it. Scholars, I mean, I never really think of myself as a scholar, but I was only one of two scholars who had had a chance to to, to look at it. And so that was a, a real lucky thing. I still, to this moment, feel incredibly blessed that I got a chance to look at it. The Colville Diary, um, first of all, the, the published diary has probably been used by every single author who has written about Churchill since the diary became public back in, uh, gosh, I, I, I don't know when it was first published. But what made me decide to compare the published with the unpublished in the Churchill archives was a reference in the introduction to the published version where Colville was a very serious young man, um, maybe too serious for his own good. Colville, in the introduction to the published diary, says that everything's in this diary except certain things that he cut, which he referred to as trivialities. Now, to me, from my experience writing narrative nonfiction, the word trivialities is like, is like the best alarm that says, bing, 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 might be interesting, might be interesting. And so one day I was at the Churchill Archive Center and I thought, yeah, I'm going to compare these things. And, and so I took the, uh, took the published version off a shelf and started going through the unpublished version. And happily, Colville made this comparison very easy for me because he had in very light pencil bracketed the areas of his diary that he was going to cut out and the rest would be left in the diary. So I started reading through the through the diary, flipping through, seeing where I could find these penciled uh, these penciled marks, and suddenly I realized, wow, these to him these were trivialities. As at the time he wrote this, uh, you know, the, the forward to his diary, but at the time he wrote the, the the actual entries in his diary, these were not trivialities. I mean, this guy was in love, you know, he was in love. This was an unrequited love. It was distracting for him. It was the thing that probably occupied most of his thinking hours when he wasn't being worked to the bone by Churchill. So, so uh, it was just a, a lovely little discovery. What I found, Eric Larson, in reading the book is that there's a really interesting confluence, which is that Churchill's first year begins virtually at the time the Blitz starts, and it ends at virtually the time the Blitz ends. So it's almost like a perfect narrative 
story for you. Let me talk about that, uh, why it's a story about one year. A lot of uh, people I've spoken to since this book came out have, have asked me what made me decide to choose one year in Churchill's, uh, you know, the first year of Churchill's premiership, you know. Uh, you know, why did I decide to designate just one year? And I did not um, intend to at the start. It simply worked out that way. As you noted, when he became prime minister on uh, May 7th, 1940, that was actually the day that the so-called Phony War became uh, essentially a shooting war where Hitler invaded the Low Countries and so forth. It became the World War II that we all, we all know. And with that, once France fell, came uh, the beginning of attacks against the British Isles by the Luftwaffe. And these all came to an end, however, on May 10th, 1941, in, in a wonderful narrative confluence for a writer of nonfiction. You know, novelists can can make anything happen because, of course, they control the action. But when I discovered that this German air campaign, this was the significant German air campaign against Britain of the war. There were other attacks against Britain subsequently, but this was the one that we all think about when we think about the Blitz, the Battle of Britain, and so forth. But that did actually come to an end on May 10, 1941. He became prime minister on May 10, 1940. So literally was the year to the day, first year of his premiership when this air campaign came to an end. And to me, that's like, oh my gosh, what a perfect time compartment. But more than that, you know, two other narrative threads in the book um, also reached their end on that very day. And we can talk about those threads if you want. And, and, and a fourth thread came to an end three days earlier. <laughs> so, so it was just this lovely confluence of, of things happening. I'm going to shift gears for one second and we're going to come back to the story because as I was reading the book, and as Washington was crumbling, I kept thinking, particularly in the scenes involving Germany, that I was reading instead of about Hitler and uh, Goering, I was reading about Trump and Barr. <laughs> what was happening? What was happening in Britain with Churchill, the articulate man, and we can gloss over his colonialism and racism for the moment, an articulate, educated man surrounded by articulate and educated people compared to what was going on in Germany and the parallel between what's happening in Washington now with the pandemic versus reading about Hitler and his people. Well, you know, you got you got to be careful about some of those parallels, and we can parse those out. I think the thing that has, of course, run through my mind a lot since this book came out, and and and, and honestly, I think it's pretty clear I did not plan this pandemic. So, so <laughs> right. But you know, the uh, the the book came out at a time uh, when there was uh, no pandemic. Right. Um, right. And, and then in the midst of it, um, you know, three weeks into my book tour, in fact, suddenly, suddenly everything went to hell, frankly. And the pandemic began raging and people suddenly began coming to my book for a very interesting reason, which really did surprise me at, at first. They began coming to my book because they seemed to need a, a reminder of what real leadership looked like. Because here is Churchill confronting an existential crisis, in this case, mechanical and, and human from the Luftwaffe. Here's Churchill facing this, this existential crisis, 57 consecutive nights of bombing, six months 
of additional raids um, intensifying, but at longer intervals because of winter weather. And the man rose to the occasion. He was, again, you know, you can talk a lot about his racist inclinations, his imperialist inclinations, but for this period, the man was definitely the man for the hour. He rose to this occasion. He rallied Britain. He, he taught Britain to be fearless in the face of this thing. And you can, listen, you compare that to what we've got now. I mean, it's not even about politics. It's, it's absolutely laughable and sad. I mean, I was thinking about this actually today that, this whole pandemic would have been so much easier to deal with if we had had a sympathetic, compassionate, smart leader at the helm, providing a unified campaign against this thing. But we don't have that. Instead, like here in New York State, New York City, where I am now, you know, we have done an amazing job after a false start, mind you. We have done an amazing job suppressing this virus. And, and every New Yorker just has, who has worn a mask or has, has locked him or herself away for, you know, three months on end deserves a piece of this. And, and, and you know, our governor has, has made that clear that this is a, a heroic thing. You know, I feel and, and friends of mine feel like, like we've done this while dragging this ball and chain behind us, this federal administration that, that wants this all to go away as if there was some mirrored with the power that says, hey, if you don't if you don't look for the cases, they don't exist. So anyway, I hesitated to see other parallels and I don't really want to comment on those, but in terms of leadership and the lack thereof, this is what I see. Well, I, I think uh, for me, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm looking at it through these strange refracted glasses, <laughs> you know, I mean, when you're sitting at home, getting online and seeing this disconnect and then reading about not merely the bravery of the English people, but also the stupidity of Hitler and his decision making. Yeah. And then that complete wacko job Rudolf Hess, <laughs> right? Then it comes back to what we have here. Obviously, you know, the Nazis did things that even Trump might not do. But still, <laughs> but still, that's the part that got me. And I, I don't want to go into it too much because yeah. this book is about a better time when we were the good guys. Yeah, yeah. A few things that I noticed that I really didn't understand just before the 1940 election, Wendell Wilkie suddenly became an isolationist and his poll numbers jumped and what should have been a slam dunk for Roosevelt was not. Right. That was new to me. Well, now, of course, remember, in the end, it was a slam dunk. I mean, he did win by, by a tremendous landslide, but he had to fight for it and he had to be very careful. Wilkie had started out as sort of very, very much a moderate and then was <laughs> as in, in uh, a parallel, if you will, to today. He was advised that really the, the only way he was going to have a chance against Roosevelt was if he scared the hell out of people. And he proceeded to try to do that. Happily, happily, it didn't work. Well, happily, I don't know. Maybe Wendell Wilkie would have been a fine president. We'll never know. But in the end, of course, Roosevelt, Roosevelt won that election. In doing all this research, and this is a question I ask, I probably asked you before, what did you run across that totally surprised you and made you go, oh, wow, I could never have anticipated knowing this, and it's in the book. 
Well, you know, there were <laughs> there were so many little moments that were that kind of thing. Like, wow, really? I, I had no idea. I mean, I'll give you, you know, one example, two examples. First, I, <laughs> I had no idea going in. Now, I was not a Churchill expert going in. I mean, as I said, I came into this with the idea of doing a book about a typical London family and then decided, well, maybe I'll do Churchill. And that's when I began learning about Churchill. I, of course, read about him before and so forth. But what I was really, I was really surprised at was how much fun he was. I mean, he could be a real jerk. He really maltreated his cadre of private secretaries at intervals, but they still loved him. But he could be an awful lot of fun. But another thing I was particularly compelled by, and I will be honest, I had not known about this before. I had, again, a glancing knowledge of of Churchill before I got into this, but I, I had not known about the incident that's in the book after the fall of France, where Churchill was deeply afraid that the French fleet, which was a very modern, strong, uh, powerful fleet, would fall into the hands of Hitler, whose navy was actually pretty minimal. He was terrified that this was going to happen. And so there was a, a decision made to seize French ships in their ports, various ports around the, uh, the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. And, and some of these ships, the most important ones, we were at Maris del Kabir on the Mediterranean in Algeria. So Churchill sent a fleet, Force H, a uh, very powerful fleet to the Mediterranean to issue an ultimatum to the captains, to the admiral of this fleet that was uh, harbored at uh, Maris del Kabir. And he said, you know, we want you to join us, join us as allies. If you don't want to do that, you know, let us demilitarize your ships. If you refuse this ultimatum, we will basically blow your ships out of the water. That was that was what it came down to. And this was a hard thing to, to do. And and indeed, it turned out that the admiral at Maris, French admiral, um, refused the ultimatum, uh, began preparing his ships to leave harbor. And Churchill ordered the British admiral in charge of Force H to attack. And within moments, they had blown up a French battleship, which completely disappeared, 1,400 dead in that one instant. This, to me, was something I had never actually heard about. I mean, to me, it was astonishing to learn that that the British at this one phase were attacking their erstwhile allies. So you said he was fun. I mean, I noticed that there's a lot of drinking, and he would just walk around the room and recite stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well. actually, okay, so so you remind me about the fun, but I'm going to get to something first about the recitation. And this cuts also to, to Churchill and his, and his courage and him being the man for the hour. Whenever there was an air raid, he was more than likely going to go to the nearest roof to watch rather than hunker down in some bunker somewhere. And so one day he's having dinner with some diplomatic guests and there's a big raid. And he decides, you know, it's time to go up onto the roof to watch the raid, brings his guests with him, as one does, brings his guests, brings uh, private secretaries, and, and they go up on the roof and they watch this quite intense raid unfold. And as he's watching this raid unfold, Churchill quotes Tennyson. He quotes a poem called Loxley Hall, which in the view of some forecast aerial warfare. I mean, now think about the presence of mind that's involved in that and, and the capacity for thought. So anyway, that was, a, that was a real lovely moment. But back to the fun, back to the fun. I think my, one of my favorite scenes in the book is dinner party at Checkers, 
which is the prime ministerial estate in the countryside, and became, uh, to me, uh, surprisingly, sort of a character in the book, because it really was uh, Churchill's secret weapon, if you will. So there was a big dinner party at Checkers, and and, uh, afterwards, you know, everybody's been drinking and having a great time, and he's got probably like 10, maybe a dozen guests there. Churchill in the Great Hall at Checkers turns on the gramophone, puts on some martial military music, and begins to do these very precise bayonet drills in the Great Hall. Now, here's the thing. He's wearing, at this point, his pale blue siren suit, which is a one-piece jumpsuit of his own design, meant to be pulled on in a, in a heartbeat. He's wearing this pale blue jumpsuit, and, and over that, he's wearing this silk red dragon nightgown, nightdress, you know, robe, essentially. He's got his big manlicker big game rifle with a bayonet at the end, and he, and he proceeds to do these drills very seriously. He's not smiling when he does these. He does, he's an old military guy. He does, these, uh, does these bayonet drills right there in the main, you know, in the great hall at Checkers as his guests are gathered around along the walls laughing like crazy because this is hilarious. Part of that, I think, is that he had a very good sense of when to clown around and when to be serious. And I would guess that if he needed to be serious, it, it would switch on a dime. Well, yes. I mean, yeah, he, he was very good at switching on the dime was what he did often uh, and often in not such positive ways. But, yeah, I mean, he was very able to to compartmentalize uh, this. This is that's my my word, not anybody else's. But he's very able to compartmentalize things. For example, if, 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 if the news was really, really, really bad on a particular day, I mean, yes, it got him down. Um, and could make him really quite lugubrious at, at you know at dinner. And in one scene, he's got his head in his hands and nobody's talking. Then, of course, comes the first glass of champagne and things start to liven up. But but he was also very able to to shift gears from being in that sort of low state to being quite cheerful and, and quipping some funny thing or maybe even maybe even telling a dirty joke. He liked dirty jokes. Um, he also loved he also loved to to sing. His favorite song was Run, Rabbit, Run. He also loved the songs from The Wizard of Oz. I mean, this is a guy who had a, you know, a significant seam of, of positive childishness. When I say childish, I'm not referring to, you know, sort of a negative trait there. I mean, somebody who knew still the mirth and joy of being like a child, if not a child. What makes this book different is that we get a sense of what it was like for people to live during the Blitz during the time when food was often scarce. And you go into that in some depth. One thing I noticed is that everybody had a cold or bronchitis during that winter. And it must have been because it was so cold because there was no heat in London. <laughs> well, I'm glad you picked up on the cold. To me, that was very important. And I I made sure that those details were in there. There was a, there's a series of references around, clustered around the end of the year in 1940, where one, first one member of the family gets sick, then the other gets sick, then the other gets sick. Churchill gets bronchitis, a persistent case of bronchitis, which dogs him for a month. And the reason, the reason I felt that that was so important to have in the book is because you know how this goes, and, and I do. I mean, maybe you have a deadline, you're working on something, and you get a cold, and a bad cold, and you still have to soldier through, and it's it's miserable. So here's Churchill, you know, you know, running a war, you know, trying to survive this German air campaign, 
and he's got this terrible bronchitis, but it didn't stop him. He was he was very cheerful and you know very lively and and very articulate throughout that whole period. But it was very important for me to know that there were all these quotidian nightmares. <laughs> you know, everybody had a cold. Well, but then there was poor Clementine, his wife, who's not only dealing with keeping Winston in line, but has two daughters, one of whom is married to the Eric Trump of his day, yeah. and right Randolph Churchill, and the other is falling in love with somebody who maybe she shouldn't be falling in love with. And all of this is going on at the same time. Well, see, that, that's it's so important also. So, so the Churchills, the Churchills had several, several daughters and one son, Randolph Churchill. The two you're referring to, one is uh, Mary Churchill, who we've talked about before with her diary. The other is Pamela Churchill, who actually, who was a daughter-in-law. Right. Mary, Mary was very important to me because you know, one thing that informs this book that run, runs through it and maybe is not, you know, it's not obviously overtly evident, but is, is parenthood and fatherhood. That's sort of what I bring to the story because, you know, I am the father of three daughters. My daughters think of me as the king of anxiety. I wear that mantle proudly. If there's something that I think they need to be anxious about, I'll text them. <laughs> but, you know, thinking about how I would have coped with three daughters living in London during the Blitz, I just can't even imagine it. So there was that side of the story. And then there is Randolph Churchill, who, yeah, you see the Eric Trump uh, of his era, actually significantly worse than Eric Trump. <laughs> you know, he was just a, he was a wastrel. He was a drunk gambled too much. He was terrible about women. And somehow he wound up marrying um, this Pamela Churchill, Pamela Digby, actually was her name. You know, things started out fine and she got pregnant and uh, eventually had a had a child, little Winston Jr. But then things in their marriage really started going to hell. So there was that to worry about for Churchill, for her, for Randolph. And yeah, it, it, the bottom line is that it, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of this brutal existential long-running battle, you know, the German quest to destroy the British Isles, life went on. Speaking of life going on, there's a long segment involving one night of a party that is supposed to go to a nightclub, but of course the nightclub gets destroyed along the way. But everybody was still trying to live their own lives. I remember speaking years ago with the playwright author Lawrence, and he said that New York during World War II, despite all, was wide open sexually. And it sounds like London might have been the same way. Oh, very much so, actually. Going back to things you you mentioned that that surprised me, this probably falls into the same category, is that it did seem from the research that, well, it didn't seem, I mean, it was the case that the Blitz, the German Air Force nightly placing everybody at risk, it did seem to unleash a high level of sexuality, at least in the city of London. As the bombs fell, I mean, there was this sudden increase in, in libido. I mean, there, there, there really was a heightened sexuality. You know, it seemed like everybody was sleeping with everybody else. And, and in fact, the one character, William Paley, you know, went on to found CBS, commented on that very thing. He said, look, you know, when you're essentially when you're the odds are you're going to die. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, just go for it. 
there's a lot of sex in this book, and I did not expect that would be the case. There's also people going onto the roofs all the time to watch the bombs and to watch the airplanes fight each other overhead. Yeah, you know, this is a great spectator sport. After you after you got over the terror, there was sort of a fatalism, and many people did actually try to try to watch these watch these raid Churchill raids Churchill among them. One of my favorite characters, Olivia Cockett, who is one of the diarists for a, a social sciences outfit called Mass Observation, very very useful operation. She was one of the diarists for Mass Observation, and her story really really tracks the arc of the British populace because you know she begins. This is a long-running diary, but when the Germans began their first deliberate bombing of London on September 7th, 1940, she was terrified, like everybody else, terrified, absolutely terrified. Her terror continued for for weeks. It was awful. She could not believe that France actually fell, and she writes about this in this diary. And then one day, an incendiary bomb lands outside her home in London. Incendiaries were what the Germans dropped at the start of a raid. They dropped them throughout, but mainly at the start of a raid to set things on fire so that the fires would serve as a beacon in the night for bombers that would follow. So this incendiary bomb landed outside her home and she puts it out. She snuffs out this bomb, which is what people were instructed to try to do. But she does this. She snuffs out this bomb and she is just suddenly emboldened. Suddenly, she is no longer a passive victim. She has taken a hand in this thing, and she just gets more and more and more courageous. She is a a Scotland Yard clerk. Her lover is uh, a married man. Her lover becomes more and more more afraid. She didn't like that at all. But what I love about her story is that one day they're they're out walking, and, and a raid begins, and they hear two bombs falling. There's a distinctive scream. The Germans had sort of calibrated their bombs so that they would shriek as they fell. So they, they knew that these were two high-explosive bombs that seemed to be headed for them or nearby. And her lover, Bill, shouts, shouts, get down, get down. And she says, not in my new coat, I'm not. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, the mass observation program, that was a bunch of diaries that people actually did. How many of the diaries survived, and how did you find out that this program actually existed? Well, first of all, I, I definitely not the first person to, to tap this resource. Mass observation was a social sciences organization set up well before the war, and had nothing to do with international politics. It's you know private entity, non-governmental. The point being to try to get a sense of what ordinary British life was like, and they really meant ordinary. One of the original tests of the diarists they were trying to recruit was that they should to practice their skills. They should catalog what was what was on their mantelpieces, you know, is that kind of quotidian stuff. And they were to keep these diaries and turn them in at intervals, and then these would be processed and you know, the social scientists involved would try to come to some conclusions about British society. Hundreds of these diarists were eventually recruited. Along comes the war, and many of these diarists continue to keep their diaries. And these then provide this really interesting, intricate, precise chronicle of what this was like for the average person. A wonderful resource. And that was one of the diaries that uh, this Olivia Cockett, uh, one I described, who put out the incendiary bomb. That was one of her diaries that I came across and I loved. Well, it sounds as if 
there would be a lot of other diaries and a lot of other people that would have had a kind of hit the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah. Do you remember any where you decided not to use the person because there wasn't enough there, but there was one story that you wish you could have put in? I can't remember any one story offhand, probably because there were so many. I mean, there were so many things fluttering to the cutting room floor in the final run that it was like like a blizzard, you know what I mean? I should note that with this book, frankly, this, this book was the toughest book that I've written so far, mainly because of having to wrestle so much information into what I wanted to be a readable volume. You know, one, I think, fatal flaw, well, not fatal, but one flaw in a lot of Churchill scholarship is these books end up being gigantic, you know, a thousand pages, 1500 pages, or in the case of the classic uh, Martin Gilbert biography, six complete volumes plus, you know, I don't know, probably a couple of dozen companion volumes. So, so I wanted it to be a readable book. So I, I the, the penultimate draft I had to cut this thing from about 860 you know, book pages to what is now, I think, about 500 pages. So a lot of stuff wound up on the cutting room floor. But, you know, in trying to choose a mass observation diarist, I really wanted to go with somebody who had this, this integrated story. And that's why I went with Olivia. One thing that I wished I was able to get into this book, and I simply could not, was one phenomenon of, of the Blitz, of course, was, you know, um, death from bombs blowing up buildings that were, you know, at the time the bomb struck, fully occupied. And in one case, there was a member of an architectural firm who disappeared. There, there, there was no trace. And so began this, this Scotland Yard investigation. Uh, this, this, this particular bomb had killed like 34 other people, but this, this man had disappeared. So Scotland Yard began this three-month investigation to try to figure out what happened to this man. And it was very important to find out because until there was some, some understanding of what happened, the man's wife could not get death benefits. It was very important to have some conclusive decision about what happened to this guy. So here was this three-month investigation. My goal was to have this threaded through the period bracketing Christmas 1940. Uh, here was this three-month investigation finally yielded the official conclusion as to what happened to this guy. The official conclusion being, quote unquote, that he was blown to bits. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so and it was it was just incredible to me that Scotland would take all that time and effort. And in a very kind way. I mean, they were they did this in a very warm-hearted, civil way to try to resolve this thing. However, as much as I liked it, my editor thought it was terrible. And, you know, at that point, I was done arguing. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we experience our own lives here. Very few of us have seen war. But you try to bring in what it actually felt like. Lots of dust, sound of glass crinkling, fires, to try to give a sense of what it was like to walk through the streets. There's a sequence in Coventry where you go into depth about what it was like to just walk through the streets. Yeah, yeah. Well, I felt it was very important to, to try to give people a sense of what it would have been like. I often say that my, my goal with my books is not to is not to inform per se, but to produce as rich a historical experience as I can so that people, when they read it, when they're done reading, when they will emerge from the book, maybe with a sense of having lived in the past and having taken part as the, as the citizens of that moment had, as experienced what they'd experienced. 
So it's very important for me to, and here the mass observation diaries were very useful, as were many, many memoirs. Graham Greene's memoir, uh, Means of Escape, is very interesting on the subject of the Blitz. He was an air raid warden there there in, in, in London during that period. But when you read a lot of the stuff, when you immerse yourself in it, certain commonalities emerge. One of the things that people so often reported were these giant plumes of dust that bloomed from exploding houses. Not just like a like a film of dust, but just this massive ballooning cloud of dust. Kind of kind of evocative, frankly, of you know, in a micro scale of, of what we saw in the films as the two trade towers, you know, actually collapsed. Um, you know, these this plumes of dust and the glass, it wasn't a mere tinkling. It was like in, in some streets, there would be six, six inches, maybe a foot of broken glass in the street itself. And the sweeping up of it had this very distinctive sound. I, I think of it as a dog yelp, but that's, I didn't put that in the book. So this stuff is very important. Now, Coventry was a particularly important part of the story because the raid on Coventry was deemed by the Luftwaffe to be the most successful frankly, of the, the war up to that point. And the British, uh, the RAF, felt the same, so much so that subsequent raids were evaluated, how they compared to to the Coventry raid. Like, well, it was a one Coventry or a two Coventry. And in fact, the process of annihilating a city, a word um, was coined for it, was called Coventration. And yeah, I tried to put people into the, the city of Coventry when the cathedral was bombed when you know, one woman reported seeing a, a child running a dog running through the street with a child's arm in its mouth you know all all those kinds of details just to try to get a sense of really the magnitude of this event and how transformative it was one thing that i began doing um was I, I kept running to my computer and looking up pictures of the various places and people were you doing that throughout uh the writing photographs to me Photographs are a love-hate thing. I don't like to actually put them in books because I think they're very distracting to readers. And again, my goal is to is that readers will sink into the past for this sort of seamless experience of the past. And when you have a lot of photographs in the book, you know, they're, they're typically inserted in what, what I referred to as um, blocking uh, signatures. Um, they are typically on shiny white paper and they sit there in the middle of the book like a lighthouse beacon saying, why don't you come back and, you know, pull yourself out of the narrative and take a look at me. You know what I mean? So, so I don't like that. But on the other hand, I use photographs a lot in my research because photographs, um, you know, the, the, you can read the semiotics of photography. I, I think interests me a lot. If you look at a photograph, let's say you look at a photograph of Churchill. Okay, fine. You see that photograph, it's of Churchill, right? But I've learned from experience and, and I always discipline myself to do this, to treat the photograph itself as if it were an archive. And so I, you know, I take my, my magnifying glass and, and I go over that picture very carefully in a very systematic way. First following, taking the magnifying glass along the edges of the, of the photograph. We often overlook the edges of photographs, looking for details, people, uh, signs, uh, weird sorts of damage, whatever. And then sort of gradually circling in toward the center of the photograph, you know, and in some ways, if it is a photograph of Churchill, you know, among a crowd or on a city street, in many ways, you know, Churchill is sort of a, a redundant element of that because we all know what he looks like. And this, this is, you know, fine. But I'm interested in the details around him. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, Coventry, the, the cathedral and so forth, all that was very, very valuable. But even more valuable to me is how people describe things. Eric Larson, when you're done with a book like this, 
how does your perception of the world, when you've been working internally on a book like this for an entire X number of years, and it's finally does, does your perception of the world change at all when you finish one of these books? My perception of my world changes significantly. <laughs> I'm just so glad to be done with the damn thing. No, sorry. sorry. Um, with each book, I come to a, a new appreciation or at least a, a different appreciation of the world around me, especially with this book, because of, you know, because of the times my book suddenly found itself in and, and I as author, and I find myself just often, you know, very, just in sort of a very bittersweet way, thinking about Churchill was just, again, you know, given all his flaws and his racist inclinations and his imperialist inclinations and so forth, as I said before, he was the man for the hour. He was such a superb leader in this situation. I never intended this book to be a book about leadership, believe me, but, but it really sort of, in a de facto way that became one, because of how he did it, the various things that he did to the various things he understood about leadership that really helped the British get through it. As, as, I, as I like to say in the book, he really taught the British public uh, the art of being fearless. And then to wake from that dream, from that non-fictional dream, if you will, to our contemporary situation where there is no leadership, there is a vacuum, an utter vacuum in Washington. It's just very, very discouraging. Now, happily, you know, I live in New York City. I live in New York State. And we actually have a leader. He's flawed as well. You know, Governor Andrew Cuomo is being very Churchillian. You know, Churchill understood a number of things about, about leadership that were very, very important. First of all, he understood that you you can't you can't snow the public when they're in the mid-existential threat. You know, they know what's going on. They see the bombers. They have friends who are dying and being blown to bits. They see London in flames. You can't, you can't use happy talk on this crowd. Churchill understood that when he gave a speech, apart from his, you know, happy, not his, his really incredible flourishes, you know, it's like never has so much been owed by somebody to so few of those wonderful lines. But the real secret, I think, to his speeches was how he constructed them. First of all, giving his listeners the unvarnished facts, a very sober appraisal of what was happening. Sometimes too, sometimes, uh, you can't say too, but sometimes so sober that he terrified his audience. You know, Home Intelligence, another operation, this was a, a government entity of the Ministry of Information, was tracking public opinion and used 300 different sources, including you know, WH Booksmith kiosks. The managers of these stores would listen to the public to see what they were actually thinking. But he would do these speeches. He would give a very sober appraisal because how could he not? If he tried to snow the public, then there would be this, this real dissonance, you know, because people know what was going on. But he'd give this real sober appraisal. And then he would give a very, you know, sober also assessment of the practical reasons for optimism. Not happy talk, not like, oh, this virus is going to go away, not the Luftwaffe is going to go away, but, you know, real substantive reason for having optimism. And then would come the great flourish that would have people rising from their chairs um, uh, metaphorically and, and probably even literally. And these elements of leadership that I, I saw and that, that now, you know, every day they just sort of run through my head. It's like, oh, my God, why can't we have that? Eric Larson, a couple of quick questions, completely different. I went to IMDb. What's the status of Devil in the White City? It says Scorsese's working on it as a series with DiCaprio? 
Yeah, yeah. So the lovely thing about Devil in the White City, Devil in the White City has probably been the most option book in history. I, maybe not, but but you know, it just seems to me like it's been it's been under option by someone ever since it came out, and I think it was two thousand and three. Incredibly, but the latest iteration is that Leonardo DiCaprio, who has held the option for a long time, he and and Scorsese have decided that this is going to be a Hulu TV series, a Hulu limited series. You know, sort of. I guess, along the lines of The Handmaid's Tale or, or, or whatever. And I think that is the way to go because the plot, if you will, I mean, it's a nonfiction book, but you know, the, the two stories, it's very hard to get both into a feature film. And I think if you were doing a film about the book, you'd have to try to get those two stories in. And much easier to do in a limited TV series where you can you have the leisure, the luxury of, of, of time. So I think that's great. When it's going to happen, I have no idea. And obviously things now because of COVID, you know, I, I don't know that anybody is in production right now. And then In the Garden of Beasts, directed by Joe Wright with Tom Hanks as a movie. Uh, Garden of Beasts is also under option by Tom Hanks. This is under option by Tom Hanks. The plan there is still for a feature film. We just got a force majeure extension on the option. We granted them one. Things were moving along quite well before the pandemic. So who knows when that's going to happen. Eric Larson, now this pandemic's been happening for four months. You've had plenty of time to think about your next project. Have you zeroed in on something? Well, see, you talk about four months. Okay, well, so the first two months were basically being fully distracted and unable to do anything except drink a martini at dinner time. Um, yeah, I'm looking for my next idea. This is always the hardest process for me, as I think you know. I'm mulling a couple of things things, but nothing has really risen to the top of the pile yet. I mean, I've got I've got eight different piles of documents on my, literally eight, on my uh, office floor, of which maybe three are potentially viable ideas. But I would, I would love to get started on something. But, you know, I'm not in much of a hurry at this point, because frankly, frankly, um, archive access is going to be a problem for the next who knows. You know, there may not be a baseball season. There may not also be physical access to these some of my most important archives for for a while. So you have to kind of sit around and think about ideas, but you can't really act because you don't know when you'll be getting back to work. Well, well, true. Although, although happily, happily, you know, I don't usually like doing online research, but happily, there are a lot of very good online archives. I mean, things things have really improved over the last decade. And, you know, it's, it's a place to start. I, I, I also, this is, not, this is not to indicate at all that this is on my plate for the future, but I, I also, just because, just anticipating, who knows, who knows what, I did renew my personal subscription to the, uh, the online Churchill archive at great personal expense. You never know. So it could be another Churchill book. It's not going to be another Churchill book, but You know, there's a lot of great stuff in that archive that is only peripherally involved with Churchill. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Larson, whose latest book is The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. I'm Richard Walensky. See you next Sunday for another edition of the Radio Walensky Podcast. (laughs) 